Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So the first question we have here is from a student. The question is, yesterday Maggie consumed 1,560 calories. Her meal included a total of 50 grams of fat. What percent of calories from her daily intake came from fat? So where it can get really confusing with these quote-unquote simple type questions is sometimes we can forget about just the basic calories, especially with fat, because it's different, right, with TPN. With TPN, we're thinking two calories per milliliter for a 20% fat emulsion, and then 1.1 calories per milliliter for a 10% fat emulsion. But we want to remember with just regular, normal fat, it's nine calories per gram. So if this um, patient has had 50 grams times nine, that's telling you that there's a hundred, I'm sorry, 450 calories just from fat. We would take that over 1590, which I'm sorry, it's 1560, which was her total calories. So 450 divided by 1560, and we would get 29% if we rounded. And so this type of question, if you're getting confused with that, definitely don't be afraid to kind of practice that basic math. If you've taken any of my math classes, you know that you want to make sure that you're writing out all of the math. It's going to be really, really helpful for you because you don't want to get questions wrong just because you're making simple math mistakes. Next one, we have a question from Lynn that I like to use this question in my courses too because I feel like it's one of those kind of falls into the category of random questions where you're like, I've never heard of this. Where is this in the in-min? It's not. And more and more on the exam, there's kind of these random ones. So when you get something like this and you're like, I've never heard of it, don't get annoyed. You know, kind of stick it in your back pocket and be like, perfect, now I know. So we have iodine deficiency in a pregnant woman can lead to the development of which condition in the newborn? And so your mind should go right away and go, oh, goiter, perfect, goiter. And that's option A. And that's going to get you because this question, if it said iodine deficiency in, a, you know, an adult in the mother would be goiter. But here we're specifically asking about in the newborn because what we want to be thinking is that iodine is really important for our thyroid function, right? A thyroid is really important for our metabolism. And so if it's not working properly in the mom while the baby's in utero, it's going to cause problems in the fetus. So the answer to this one is actually prenism, which again is something that I know I didn't see when I was studying for my exam until I got this question. I think it's from Eat Right. And so what you would want to do in this situation is kind of just note that down. So remember, you're going to get the questions on the exam that are just really, really weird and annoying. So you want to make sure that you're doing, you know, kind of just throw that into your notes, throw that in vitamins and minerals and pediatrics. 
Next question I had, what is the MNT for cirrhosis and an AKI? And so let's first talk about MNT for cirrhosis. So when we're thinking about cirrhosis, my mind should automatically go liver. Cirrhosis is my end stage chronic liver disease. And at this point, the fibroids, which are kind of the hard pieces in the liver, I like to kind of think it's like a really old sponge, right? It's really, really hard. These have become so destructive that now your liver is in irreversible liver failure. And so at this point, your body is very, very metabolic. How metabolic, meaning, you know, has an increase in calories and protein, how metabolic it is depends if you're having compensated or decompensated cirrhosis. When we're thinking about our decompensated versus compensated cirrhosis, what we want to be thinking about is what that means. And if you haven't heard about that before, this is when I would encourage you to kind of use your context clues. When have you ever kind of used the word compensated, right? You'd be saying, oh, you know, this person, you know, like isn't good at something, you know, so they're going to compensate for that doing something, you know, doing something else. So if we have compensated cirrhosis, our bodies are still going to be able to, you know, have its normal functions. We're not, we're not really having issues quite yet. So you're not seeing things like ascites, you're not seeing things like portal hypertension. But then when we get into decompensated cirrhosis, your body is now really kind of showing signs of that deterioration of that disease. And so at that point, that's when we are going to start to see an increase in your calorie needs, 30 to 35 calories per kg. Protein is going to start to inch up, 1.2, 1.5, depending on what else is going on too. So when you're having decompensated cirrhosis, you might have ascites, you might have esophageal varices, you might have portal hypertension, but you're, you might have jaundice, you're really starting, you're really starting to, sh um, to show that. And then the other disease I asked about too was the AKI. And remember, when you're thinking about the MNT, you want to make sure you, like we just did with cirrhosis, that you know what it is first, because if you don't know what it is, it's really, really difficult to answer a question on it. So an AKI is an acute kidney injury. So this means that it's new. It's just happened. It's not going to be something that stays away, like it's going to stay there forever. So a lot of the time, causes of acute kidney injury could be an infection. It could also be dehydration. That's one of the number one reasons my oncology patients have an AKI. And so here, we're in our labs, what we're going to be seeing is we're going to see that BUN to creatinine ratio greater than 20. That's going to help to tell us that we have an AKI. Our sodium, if it's caused from dehydration, is going to be high because we're dehydrated. And so an AKI, it's really, really important to kind of figure out what's the cause of it. If, you know, it's an infection, treat with, you know, your antibiotics. But if it's dehydration, giving them lots of fluids. And unlike CKD, chronic kidney disease, these patients actually have higher protein needs here. So a lot of the time it can get confusing on the exam because they're writing, oh, this patient has an AKI. And you're thinking, oh, renal, renal's low. But no, it kind of depends what's going on with the AKI. But these patients would not need any sort of protein restriction. So, you know, making sure giving them calories, protein, and fluids would be the best thing there. 
And definitely, if you struggle with MNT, definitely loop back to the MNT, How to Study MNT podcast episode. That one's a really great one to kind of help you break down the different disease states. The next one was a question for me that got a lot of people, which is why, why I put it, you know, I like to be a little, you know, mean sometimes, but I want you to get them wrong on the Facebook page so you don't get them wrong on your exam. So it's with love. So this was the question. What are the two environments that affect metabolism? Here are options. Internal, external, hot and cold, superior, inferior, height and weight. And so a lot of people put height and weight because you're thinking like, oh, what affects metabolism, right? How tall I am, how much I weigh, what's my BMI, right? If we're using like Mifflin St. Joy, we're going to be, or Harris Benedict, we're putting in height and weight. But we want to be thinking, is weight an environment? Is height an environment? And here, the answer is internal and external, which doesn't make sense until you kind of take a second to pause with this practice question and go, what would that look like? So, for example, an internal environment, right, would be my organs, right? It could be that I have cirrhosis. It could be that I have an AKI, right? And then external would be things like the weather, the heat impacting me, right? If I am becoming overheated, maybe I'm outside in the sun, right? If I'm becoming overheated, I'm going to start having an increase in my calorie needs because I'm having an increased metabolic rate, just like I would with a fever. So here, this question, they're saying internal things happening inside your body and external, which would be things you know, impacting you. So that'd be like the temperature outside impacting you. So definitely, definitely a tricky question, a question there. Next one I have is what is the MNT for sepsis? So I feel like always in the hospital, there's like the, no, the signs of sepsis thing, because, you know, it doesn't really show itself because sepsis is a blood infection. So when we're thinking about, well, what's the MNT for sepsis? A lot of the time, you know, because an infection is causing this, you're having just higher calorie needs because your body's kind of trying to burn off, you know, trying to give yourself a fever, you know, to try to kill off the infection. And remember, for a fever, every de degree over 98.6 would cause a 7% increase in your calorie needs. So let's say I had a fever of 2 degrees that would be a 14% increase. Let's say my patient had, needs 2,000 calories at baseline. I would do 2,000 calories times 1.14 to increase it by 14%. So I would need an additional 280 calories. So the new calorie needs would be 2,280 there. So we would worry about calorie needs. You'd also want to see if they're treating them with antibiotics, worry about diarrhea, where if you're having lots of diarrhea, worrying about your electrolyte losses, thiamine losses. And then also a really important one with infection that we often forget about would be to monitor the blood sugar. High blood sugar creates an environment where you're going to kind of be giving, you're giving your, right, the bacteria in your blood some food too. So you wouldn't want, you really want to have really, really tight control 
of your blood sugars when you're in when you're in the ICU. Okay. The next question we have here is a nutrition diagnostic statement signs and symptoms refers to what? And so when we're thinking about nutrition care process, we really want to remember that we have the PS statement, right? And the PS statement is going to be in the diagnosis. So we have our problem, what can I do about something, right? We have our etiology, what is causing the problem, and then our signs and symptoms would be our subjective and objective data. Next question we have is based on the following patient data, which of the individuals would be eligible for a bariatric uh, surgery? So we have a 53-year-old man with sleep apnea, hypertension, and a body mass index of 32. We have a 24-year-old with a BMI of 50. We have a 48-year-old woman with a BMI of 39, no comorbidity conditions. And then we have a 42-year-old with a BMI of 36 and steroid-induced obesity. So with this question, they're putting a lot of options where you might like jump to. Like the first one, you're like, oh, look at those comorbidities. But with questions, you want to kind of be like, what topic is this on, right? It's talking about bariatric surgery. So I would take a pause and say, okay, well, what do I know about the indications for bariatric surgery? So I'm thinking, okay, you need to be at least a BMI of 35, and you need to have a BMI of greater than 35 with comorbidities. If you have a BMI greater than 40, you don't need to have comorbidities. You probably would likely see them, but just having a BMI of 40 is going to qualify you for bariatric surgery. So with that in mind, I would again go through each of these. So now when I look at the first one, with the person has comorbidities, sleep apnea, hypertension, BMI is not high enough. Take that out. B, BMI is 50. Perfect. Keep them in. C, BMI 39. No comorbidities. Take it out. And then we have the last one, BMI of 36 with steroid-induced obesity. But remember, comorbidity is an additional, is going to be an additional condition to the one we already have. So I can't have a comorbidity of obesity be obesity because I already, I already have that. So you want to make sure you're kind of taking a step back and that's going to help make sure you're getting the questions right. So next up, we have a student asking, does anyone know diseases related to each of the following? And this is asking about our acid-base disorders. And it's a really, really great idea with the acid-base to have an example of a disease or a condition that would cause each one. And this is how I teach it to my students. So the first one we're thinking of here is respiratory acidosis. And the student who asked the question correctly said, I know this one is COPD, which is great because respiratory, you're thinking your lungs. Acidosis, you're thinking, okay, there's something wrong with my lungs and there's a lot of acids. And when we're thinking about respiratory, we're thinking about pH and CO2. They are going to move in opposite directions because CO2 is acidic. So I'm saying, okay, acidosis. That means my pH is low, my acid, and so my acid is high. So that means low pH and then high CO2. So this is going to be a condition with hypoventilation like COPD. 
The next one is the opposite, right? Respiratory alkalosis. Alkalosis, now pH is high. CO2 moves in the opposite direction, so this would be low CO2 and then high pH. Now, that means I'm losing a lot of CO2. So this is a patient who's having hyperventilation. This could be someone with chronic heart failure. This was also me when I went to Denver and I was like, oh my God, the air is so thin up here, right? So you want to be thinking, okay, so COPD would be respiratory acidosis. Then heart failure, high altitudes would be respiratory alkalosis. Next up, we have the metabolic. So metabolic, think kidneys, think bicarb. Bicarb is basic, so pH and bicarb move in the same direction. So metabolic acidosis, acidosis is low pH, so low pH, low bicarb. I'm having a buildup of acid. So this would be someone with CK, not CKD, uh, DKA. So right, DKA, I have a buildup of acid with the ketones. Opposite of this, we have metabolic alkalosis, so high pH, bicarbs following that. So this is a condition where I have a lot of a base. And so this could be something like we're having, um, this could be something like we're seeing in patients who are vomiting a lot because they're vomiting their hydrochloric acid too. The next one, we had a student asking how to solve these MEQ questions and what do we need to know about MEQ? And we had another student on here comment and say, you know, this really isn't a big topic. I wouldn't worry about it. And you know, that's right. There's not, you know, you're not going to be asked 10 MEQ questions on the exam, but as you're going through and studying, I would encourage you to try to study, you know, all of the topics. And if after you're studying them, you're like, you know what, Dana, no matter how many questions I do on MEQs, I'm still stuck. At that point, I'm going to say, you know what, you're only, I only need you to know 80% of the material on the exam. You're never going to know 100. So at that point, it's okay. But there wouldn't be topics that I would say kind of right out the gate in your studying, like, don't worry about this, you know, because if, you know, it's in a practice question, if you're seeing it on the page, if you're seeing it on the courses, it's there because it's on the exam. So you just want to be careful with that. There's a lot of little topics, you know, that you want to kind of get through. And if at the end of studying, you're like, this is tough for me, that's okay. But don't knock things off right away because something like the MEQ, you have to memorize this because they're not going to give you atomic weight. They're not going to give you the valence. They're not going to give you the equation. So if you're getting a question, like I put on the page of, how many milligrams are in 45 MEQs of calcium? And you can't tell me atomic weight of calcium. You can't tell me valence. You can't tell me the equation. You're going to get that one wrong, which is the case when then the computer adaptive exam is going to be like, perfect, well, let me send some more of those down the pike. So, you know, give it a shot. And with the MEQs, I put up the study guide on the page, but if you're just listening on the podcast and you want it, just shoot me an email, DanaJFryerNutrition at gmail.com. Ask me for the MEQ study guide and I will send it to you. Otherwise, if you're on the Facebook page, just search MEQ. So for MEQs, we want to know the equation. So ready? Get your pencil. It's MEQ is equal to milligrams over atomic weight. That's in parentheses together times the valence. We only need to know the atomic weight and valence for 
three factors. Sodium, atomic weight 23, valence 1. Potassium, atomic weight 39, valence 1. And then calcium, atomic weight 40, valence 2. So with this one, what we want to be saying is, okay, if I have my formula, right, I just went over it, and then my question is how many milligrams would 45 MEQs be of calcium? So I, I put that in. So I have 45 equals X over my atomic weight 40, and then I have times the valence, right? So to move my valence, and my valence is two, over to the other side, what I will want to do is divide my 45 divided by two, right? To kind of move it, um, to move it to the other side. So when I divide my 45 by two, I'm now getting 20, 2.5 is equal to my x over 40. And then what I'm doing is I'm just now moving my 40 across, so I'm multiplying it. So I do 22.5 times 40, I get that I would take 900 milligrams of calcium to get 45 MEQ of calcium. So definitely with that one, it's super easy to make up questions for it. Just write down your equation, pick random MEQs or milligrams, and then just kind of plug it in. But you want to make sure you're practicing these because I don't want that to be a question you get wrong on the exam just from not knowing the equation. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.